You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your anchor, Victor, and joining me is my wonderful co-anchor, William Gallagher. Oh, hello, co-anchor. I thought, you know, guests stand in, um, substitutes, uh, couldn't get anybody else. Now co-anchor. I like this. Thank you. Mannequin. Uh, okay, it was going so well. Okay, uh, but nonetheless. <laughs> hi. Thanks for having me on. Close horse. Okay, move on now, please. <laughs> All right, joining us for a very special section of the Apple Insider podcast is Michael Mayhem Mac Guitar Simmons. <laughs> you just brought me back very far, Victor. Well, it's it's uh, interesting because when I opened up an application called Pixel Check, there in the about box for Pixel Check was the Mayhem nickname. And it said something to the effect of, this is my very first Cocoa application. That's right. Yeah, um, those were the early days of uh, Mac OS X or what, Mac OS X. And um, I actually... I had a dead pixel on a laptop and I looked around and there was not an app to find a dead pixel on a laptop. And I knew such an app, you know, they had apps out there to do this. Like the theory was out there that you just put up color screens and then you could easily identify a dead pixel and, um, got to figuring out how to just cobble it together, put up some views. It was, it was pretty easy. I mean, it wasn't easy for me cause I'm not a coder by trade, but I knew enough to get going and uh, off I went. And, and that was a hugely useful application to me back in those early days. You know, I, I was buying laptops and iBooks and, and things back then. And I used that application to make sure, was I buying a good one? Did I have lots of pixels on the display already that were already failed? And uh, so it was it was really a revelation for me to follow you through through history with, as you've, you've been a part of more of these different types of applications. You know, we're, I'm a big fan of Fantastical. Thank you. I'm also a big fan and user of CardHop, and and so is my uh, my co-host on this show, William Gallagher. He's he couldn't stop talking about how great CardHop was. Thank you, and I'll give a little tiny teaser that there's something big in the works. I can't say more than that, and I won't say more than that. But we love CardHop as well. CardHop is definitely my personal pet project, and um, contacts is not an easy topic to make exciting, and it's not an easy topic to get anyone excited about. So. Little by little, we're building on card hop, and uh, we'll have some exciting news soon-ish. And <laughs> I, I want to point out that, you know, as I've, I've watched you, so you did the, the pixel check thing independently, and then Fantastical is is uh, part of FlexiBits, which is your company. That's right. But you also work with a company called Algorithm. That's right, very closely. I consider them family. And so, you know, just it's it's – Really interesting how you've gone from from sort of these productivity contacts calendar applications to also working on products like the the many different apps versions of DJ. Yeah, well, I'm very very interested in media, um, audio, visual, audio, audio and visual. Um, I uh, many years ago worked for a company called Ambrosia, and um, I was the director of products and marketing there. And one of the first products I launched there was something called Wiretap Studio, which was an audio app. Uh, I've always had a real passion for multimedia. And um, yeah, so I've always had an interest in that. And actually, the way I found Algorithm, ironically, is when I was working at Ambrosia, DJ had come out around that time. I want to say it was 2007 or 2008. And I was so mesmerized by the app because there was never a DJ app before that just worked. You would just drag a track on and boom, you were DJing. And I used to DJ when I was younger. So 
I looked at DJ apps here and there in 2006, seven, eight, whatever this time frame, and DJ just, it just hit me. So I remember writing them an email and saying, hey, we make this audio app at Ambrosia and you make this, we should try to get together. And we never did anything, but we always kept in touch. And then uh, after I moved on, I ended up just, you know, helping them out with some stuff for, uh, I think, design and marketing and stuff. And it's been a great relationship ever since, and I've been very proud to work on it for all these years. And and I should mention, we saw that in the uh, the iPad keynote earlier this year. Absolutely, yeah. We were very, very proud that Apple gave us that honor again. And uh, yeah, we were featured on the latest iPad Pro um, devices that Apple has released. And uh, it was a little sneak peek of what's coming to DJ in the future. Um, we we're very excited to kind of show what's coming. Very cool. I, I know a lot of people are anticipating that. Yeah, I'll actually even give your uh, listeners a little bit of a tease that next uh, couple weeks, there might be some exciting news. So they should definitely stay tuned to algorithm.com. Um, I'll spell it just in case, A-L-G-O-R-I-D-D-I-M.com. And um, yeah, some some very exciting stuff going on. And I think in the next couple weeks, everyone will be excited about DJ. That's going to be awesome. Thanks. Can you speak a little bit about what the new devices are enabling you to do or, or how they're helping you really grow what you can deliver in an app? Absolutely. So the new iPad Pro, one of the biggest things I'm sure everyone is seeing about it is that it's really becoming a primary device or a computer. I don't want to call it a computer because I will always, always, I'm old school, so I'm different, but I'm going to give you my point of view. I will always know that a laptop or a desktop or something that's a computer is a computer. Um, for me, it'll never be replaced. But that doesn't mean that it's not as good. It can be better. So the new iPad Pro, for example, with USB-C and its huge, beautiful screen and its incredible processor that I would argue is better than desktop processors because it is. Um, there's so much potential there. It's just a different segment. But for example, with, you know, the USB-C, there's so many things that can be done with it, like MIDI, external displays. Um, you saw in the Apple keynote with iPad Pro video mixing. Uh, there, there's just, there's just so much potential for it. And I, I'm glad Apple has been building it little by little. Um, it's almost like what we were talking about earlier with card hop, you know, it's a hard thing to crack. So little by little, you chip away at it and you try to make it better. We feel that, or I feel that the iPad is, you know, the perfect device, especially for an app like DJ. Um, just the, the, the interactivity, the touchability, the, the speed of it. Now the storage that it has, just everything about that device is perfect for a music app like DJ. And yeah, we're, we're, we're very impressed. And I'm per personally very impressed with the new iPad pro. And I think it's definitely the next generation of iPads and is really changing that segment. One of the things that I was sort of excited about was the number of cores that they've put in for machine learning. Yep. And, you know, I don't know how developers are going to take advantage of that, but I'm excited by the possibility of it. You know, I, I, I don't know what Fantastical can do with machine learning for me, since it's already so cool at understanding the different um, out of order kind of pieces of information I use to compose an appointment. But I like the idea of it because I hope that there's promise there. No, there definitely is. And I will tell you from both the Fantastical and DJ point of view, these new processors and all of the power that the new iPads are bringing, even the iPhones, right? The processors on the iPhones are incredible too. We shouldn't forget about them. They're, they're enabling us to do things that we couldn't do before. And 
you know, in the future of DJ and perhaps in the future of Fantastical, the apps will continue to grow as the processors continue to grow. And we absolutely want to take advantage of that and will. One of the things that some of, of the users that I talk to ask, and they ask this all the time, especially every year around this, this sort of time of year, this quarter, is why should I upgrade my phone? You know, this phone works perfectly well. Why, why should I go out and, and spend the money to do the upgrade? And as a developer, can you help me answer that? Yeah, I mean, as a developer, this probably won't be a common or um, appreciated view, but I've always advised my friends and family or colleagues that you should upgrade when you think you need to upgrade. Like, I don't actually believe you should buy a new phone just because there's a new phone, but if you see an app that comes out and there's a bunch of powerful features and you may feel that on your phone it's not having the same performance or maybe there's something you're doing where apps are closing all the time because you're running out of memory or you know there's a technology that maybe the new iPad has but the old one doesn't you're definitely missing out on the experience so while I won't say just get one to get one you definitely get advantages by getting them and I think that's the, the best way of showing someone that because if you tell someone to get one then you know it's up to them if they want to get it but if you tell them about the new technologies that it opens better experiences, the features and apps, perhaps, it, it really starts to add value because things get better. So yeah, I, I just, as, as upgrades happen, I think the way that people would upgrade is seeing all new technologies and features that they can get from that new device. Thank you so much for that. And, and thank you so much for making time to talk to us today. Michael Simmons, FlexiBits.com, Algorithm.com, and we're just going to have to keep watching those sites for, for exciting news, right? Absolutely. Stay tuned. And thanks for having me on, Victor. I really do appreciate it as well. I'm so pleased that you got him on. I mean, I love Fantastical, but also, I mean, everybody loves Fantastical. You use it uh, and you're a fan. Uh, it's Card Hop recently that's been getting me because, you know, it's Contacts app. Uh, uh, but the number of times I can just I press two keys, have it pop up on my Mac, and I'll type um, copy Victor email address. And it find your contact leads, copy your email address, I go somewhere else and just paste it. I find I'm using that day after day and stuff. The speed of getting stuff is great. So uh, very excited to hear him in live and in the flesh, so to speak. Yeah. Now a word from our sponsor. Incidents are inevitable, and it all comes down to how your company responds. Incidents require complex coordination between operations and software development teams, who are the unsung heroes putting out fires every day. And getting alerts immediately is critical when an incident occurs, and that's why there's OpsGenie by Atlassian. OpsGenie empowers dev and ops teams to plan for service disruptions and stay in control during incidents, gives teams the power to respond quickly and efficiently to unplanned issues. And it helps notify all the right people through a smart combination of scheduling and escalation paths that take into account things like time zones and holidays. Allows for deep flexibility in how, when, and where alerts are deployed, supported by over 200 integrations like Jira, Amazon CloudWatch, Datadog, New Relic, and more. And it, it tracks all the activity and provides useful invites to improve future incident responses. With OpsGenie, your next incident doesn't stand a chance. Visit OpsGenie.com to sign up to get a free company account and add up to five team members. That's OpsGenie.com. Never miss a critical alert again with OpsGenie by Atlassian. Now, we were talking before we started recording a little bit about the news. And there's there's uh, this whole thing going on with Qualcomm, mm. right? Uh, do you, are you interested in Qualcomm at all? Have you mentioned it in any previous episodes, do you think? No, no. Why would I? I mean, so Qualcomm is in this big 
lawsuit with Apple over licensing fees, really. Royalties is what it comes down to. And the idea is that Apple believes they've been paying too much for royalties, that in some cases even double billed, and Qualcomm just wants the money. They've done everything right according to them. They want to get paid. Both sides are reasonably tenable unless you have the numbers to look at. You'd say Qualcomm has this property. They should get paid for it. Yes, sure. And the difficulty is if there's a case where the manufacturer, the contract manufacturer is paying to use the license, paying to use the technology, and then Apple is also paying because they're shipping a product within it, then that's double billing. Okay. That makes sense. Yes. The other question is, are these things punitive? Now, Judge Lucy Coe already ruled that Qualcomm needs to license this stuff out, which is good news for Intel and MediaTek because then they can make radios with the same technology in it. And Qualcomm was trying to settle. Qualcomm was trying to get things wrapped up and and settle and avoid going to trial. That has not happened. The king is going to trial. In the meantime, it's come out that there is a PR firm. Now, this PR firm had been hired – I'll get to the point. The PR firm had been hired by Facebook to write nasty things at critics after the Cambridge Analytica debacle. This same PR firm, Definers Public Affairs, was hired by Qualcomm and conducted campaigns against Apple. And there was a, a website called Draft Tim Cook 2020, which was was acting as if they wanted to try and recruit Tim Cook to run for president of the United States of America. And this is sort of a, a, a subtle attack, right? Because it's t- – t- Mr. Cook is very outspoken, right? He's very outspoken on civil rights. He's very outspoken on privacy rights as a civil right. He's been pushing for privacy legislation or at least talking about the idea of it. And so when Definer says draft 2020, draft Tim Cook 2020, they're not actively saying they want Tim Cook for president. They're saying that as a chairman of a company, he's – acting out of place by involving himself in politics. Oh, I see. Now, I didn't appreciate that at all. I just uh, thought, you know, well, that's nice uh, kind of thing. But now make, that makes sense. They're positioning him into a, a, an uncomfortable other I love the fact that you're into Qualcomm for the technical stuff, and I'm into it for the business side of how it works. And it's all coming together through this. So- now, obviously, there's another angle to this, which is that Tim Cook is a well-known uh person who trends towards the liberal sides of politics, right? He he doesn't actively say who he identifies with, but it, it is clear that his focus is on positions that are at least traditionally associated with liberal side of politics, like support for uh, LGBT rights, support for civil rights, support for equality in the workplace, support for privacy for every end user, you know these are things that that are are positions that one might associate with that. So they're they're also putting this up as a way of trying to make conservative voters or let's let's say today's modern Republican uncomfortable with the idea of that and sort of put a, a psychological wedge between them and Apple. Yeah. Now that doesn't actually work out because there are many well-known conservative uh, talking heads who are Apple fans without shame, without fear. You know, Rush Limbaugh gives away iPhones whenever a new iPhone is launched kind of thing. Um, he, you know, he regularly – like when the iPhone 8 was launched, the, he gave away a ton of iPhone 8s for two weeks running, something like that. Just to anyone who called into his show, he, they'd call in and say, hey, do you have a phone? <laughs> I need to. Give you a phone. 
<laughs> give him give him the red one. Give him the plus model. He would do that. Okay. And he talks regularly, you know, and, and this is a normal thing. So Definers was trying to to do this in in a interesting and subtle way, create this kind of message. Now it's it's not nearly as nasty as the messages they put out on behalf of Facebook, but the, the you know they were disseminating these stories critical of Apple and of Cook. They posted fifty seven articles at least pertaining to the company this year, and some of them directly addressed the dispute with Qualcomm. So that one's a subtle one, but there are more ones that are more directly, like the idea that the iPhone eight would be slower than the competition because it uses <laughs> chips made by Intel, not Qualcomm. <laughs> right. And yeah. What what that fails to point out is that well that's somewhat true that there are phone, iPhone eights that totally did ship with Qualcomm in them, namely the Sprint and Verizon models, and those models were were slightly faster than the Intel ones, not measurably. And, you know this is this goes back to the kind of thing when Samsung and TSMC were both making the processors for iPhone, and we had people trying to compare which chip was faster, which chip was better because they were built on a slightly different process at one point, but the um you know here that was def- definitely trying to make qualcomm cast aspersion on on intel's you know apple's products aren't quite as good anymore because they don't have qualcomm inside and you know this this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum because in addition to those articles being published and being run and and 57 is not a small number getting 57 pieces published is is yeah. pretty good for any publications firm um and I'm also just when he said about 57 things getting in, I have friends in PR who'd be very pleased with that. But also, I know Republicans who are very pro LBGT. So it's it's a messy area that they've chosen to go uh, paddling about in. They are a DC area PR firm. They are no strangers to to political topics like that. Okay. Hmm. So what happens next? Does this mean they've been caught? Well, yeah, and that presumably doesn't help. Uh, win friends at Apple on the legal team. I'm not sure that's how it works, but it doesn't help. Well, I don't think it's about winning friends on the legal team. The The legal team, the, the court case is confined to something very specific. The The PR and smearing each other in the press doesn't really take place in the court ha- courtroom and doesn't really have a place in the courtroom, I think. What does happen is, does that make Apple want to work with them more or less? I actually think Apple is capable of doing, you know, quite ruthlessly um, pragmatic decisions. Uh, you, over the years, haven't you seen it? That no matter how, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a caustic enough word, uh, uh, caustic, the relationship between Apple and Samsung is, there's another part of Apple that's dealing with Samsung. And actually, you get this all over the place. In Hollywood, you can be being sued by a producer that you're working for on another project. Uh, it just, it, I, think, I think it's a bit more pragmatic, a bit more adult than I could be, but it's what they do. Well, old Apple under Steve Jobs was not quite that pragmatic. And there were cases where as soon as there was another supplier, they would burn the first one for for this kind of act. Right. Uh, examples, when the Mac Mini was rumored to be launched, before it was announced, it was announced that it was going to ship with an ATI chipset. Okay. And yeah. as soon as that was announced, it did not, and it shipped instead with the NVIDIA part. Okay. And the you know, they they threw out Motorola as quickly as they could and replaced them with IBM for the PowerPC G3 and G5 chips. Is that the same? And I, I imagine I seem to remember at the time that it had turned out to be a longer progression 
Then it might have said, Motorola failed yeah. abysmally. And as as soon as they failed that, they, they got another cycle of computers out of them because that was in the pipeline. And then the iBooks launched with the IBM PowerPC 750GX part mm-hmm. that, that Motorola lost that business. And they partnered again with Motorola for the phone business, which is, of course, a totally different part of Motorola. And that fell over very quickly, as you may the remember, rocker. the motor rocker. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Um, that, that if there's a part compatible and a way of not being dependent upon someone, then they will move on. They've already made this progression to move on away from them in every way except for those CDMA suppliers that require it like Verizon and Sprint. Right. So this is happening. And this this PR fiasco does not – help matters for Qualcomm. No. So what happened? If you want my prediction, if you want my prediction, my prediction is that Apple hires away key Qualcomm people. (laughs) My prediction is that the licensing that Judge Lucy Coe was talking about comes to be and Intel and MediaTek license the heck out of the Qualcomm patents and, and IP portfolio. And that Apple buys from Intel and MediaTek until such time that Apple is able to produce their own wireless chip and license those those IP portfolios directly. Sounds – well, I mean, sounds easy. I'm sure it takes more than it sounds. But yeah, that makes sense. They should do that then. Well, so here's the thing, right? Samsung has announced a couple of different 5G handsets already. And the, the uh, Qualcomm president – whose name is uh, Cristiano Amon, said that by the end of 2019, all the Android handset makers will have at least one flagship device capable of do- using 5G. Now, iPhone is probably not going to have that until 2020. I actually wrote the news story for Apple Insider uh, about this, and I hadn't initially appreciated why, uh, but it was a claim. Well, uh, this this week, Bloomberg claiming it. Others have claimed it before, like Fast Company. And this time, saying that uh, maybe it's a dispute with Qualcomm, maybe it's uh, Apple doing what it did uh, years ago with 3G and 4G, Wait until the bugs settle before they move in. Well, it's not just it's not just the bugs. When 4G LTE arrived, there were a number of carriers advertising 4G speeds and claiming 4G and not having LTE ready. Right. Right? Sprint was 4G. AT&T was were 4G, but they weren't LTE. They got LTE, but but it wasn't there when they first announced. Yes. It was really more of a three and a half G, if we're honest. And here we are, and Verizon says, we've got 5G up and running in Indianapolis. No, they don't. They have a draft. It's not really 5G yet. What do you mean by a draft? Like they're just trying it on in a version? Or... Well, first of all, it's a trial area. But second of all, as as far as I'm aware, the there there are still things going on in terms of the spec being exactly finalized. It's not a fully baked thing yet. It's close, but it's it's not. You mean it's not as robust and solid as the USB-C standard that everybody adheres to in such a clear way? Well, that keeps getting revised too. Okay, right. It doesn't get clearer, but it gets Which is right. exactly why you're cheeky about it. But, <laughs> you know, the, the here, here's the thing is that a lot of people worry about first to market. First to market is the most valuable position, right? It's the, the once you're first to market, you can do anything. No. First to market is nice, but first to market means nothing when you're best to market. And there are going to be a bunch of 5G handsets, but I ask you, where are the towers? 
Oh, I see what you mean. Sorry, when you say towers, I think about desktop computers, but of course you mean cell towers. No, no, cell phone towers, right? I don't know what, how much of a difference there is for the tower part in the move to 5G. I'm imagining, can we say it's substantial? Yeah. Okay. And there are a lot of towers, aren't there? There are. Okay. Yeah, and, and the United States is a large country with lots and lots and lots of them. Right, and you feel they're not all going to be ready uh, for January the 1st? No. Okay. Now, Indianapolis as a trial area is going to be able to be updated for that if they aren't already, you know, they're they're in good position, right? Uh, other places, you get the big metros. You get New York, you get Chicago, you get uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, uh, go for Houston, Texas, Austin, Texas, uh, tend to put one in Durham or Raleigh, North Carolina along the way. Uh, DC area gets it because everyone likes to show off to the FCC and the <laughs> DC polls that they're doing the right thing. Right. Um, and, and so you, you get those areas first and then you've got this huge, vast country to fill in. Yeah. How long did it take to get, uh, 4G towers to whatever amount of coverage there is at the moment? I mean, that, that took about a year, year and a half. Well, that's faster than I thought you were going to say. Two year. It, it takes a while to roll out. It just does. Sure, but that's much faster I mean, than I thought given... Yeah, I mean, it's a physical thing, a fitting thing. Because I'm, I'm minded of the tower changes uh, that were done here in the UK when colour television came in. And the announcement from the BBC was that it was going to take most of the 1970s <laughs> to get it in place. So in my head, physical things take a very long time. So a year and a half. Doddle, let's, let's just do that then. Yeah. Well, here's the thing is that the, the cell carriers, the cell phone carriers, live or die on new subscribers. Mm. And if they have a number of subscribers leaving, if they have a huge amount of attrition, uh, then someone else is getting those customers. You know, AT and T and Verizon are number one and number two. T Mobile and Sprint were three and f- you know three and four, four and three really. And their merger puts them in a good position because it means that they can assimilate and and have all this coverage and all these customers. Now, what's interesting for them is that it's a good time because it means. They get to update all of those towers and they get to work into migrating people over from CDMA to GSM. Okay. And T-Mobile has bought up more bandwidth, more spectrum. You know, they were on the 700 megahertz band. They've also bought some 600 megahertz. And so that means that they'll be able to go ahead and pull together and get more people covered and be able to claim bigger coverage. Uh, if, if AT&T and Verizon, who have the most coverage of any of them, falter here, that's a big deal. So what I think you're building to is they're going to say they've got 5G, even if they haven't, and they're going to scrabble to fill in the gaps as they go. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Well, it's a plan, I suppose. Uh, but all of that makes me think I don't care that uh, there won't be a 5G iPhone for a year or, or whatever. Exactly. It's not really of any big consequence. Okay. And especially if you're taking advantage of the upgrade programs that either your carrier has or Apple has, then it becomes of almost no consequence. Well, good point. And yeah, um, there's no way and, I'm off my uh, iPhone XS Max for the next 20 years. But yes, and? Well, except that when you get 5G service around you, then you'll have a valid reason for saying this perfectly good phone that does everything I want is now slow on the internet. Yes, Time and I am highly prone to fall for dubious valid reasons but my bank account isn't so um i i have a an enforced pragmatism about changing too often it just says you need a better bank account okay 
That's uh, where I've been a fool to myself. That's what I should work on. Okay, Maybe I should join one of these on, PR William. companies and write 57 articles about something terrible. <laughs> um, I should point out, I have written for PR companies. I mean, not for a very, very long time. Uh, well, I yes, but it. many of them, a few of them, a small number of them have integrity. Yes, all the ones I worked with, I, I would proudly exactly. go back to. Yes. I'm, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. But yeah. there, there are, you know, PR is one of those practices where someone pitches you something, pitches a, 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 a device, an announcement or something, and it, it doesn't have to be related to what you write about at all. It can be completely unrelated, and yet they're still like, so there's a chance, right? You'll, you might cover it. Um, and as long as they don't get a no, that's kind of a yes, yeah. which is, is sensible because they're trying to get coverage anywhere they can, but sure. it's not – Yes, I completely agree. It's, 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 it's the pressures they're under. I don't envy them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's an interesting business. Yes. But I didn't know people were hired being doing this until Facebook and now this – Okay. You didn't know that there were spin doctors out oh, there. Oh yes, that. I phrase, mean, there's yes, but I just. I mean, there's said. there's crisis PR and there's there's this sort of offensive, um, you know, on the offense, aggressive kind of PR. And crisis PR is is a whole other practice that's really really an interesting one. But this is um, yeah, this is unique, isn't mm -hmm. it? Uh, I nearly said something I shouldn't say there. Let's see a fast way to say it. Uh, I'm currently working with a very large UK organization that had a small public relations, uh, I'm not going to say disaster, it was a, a hiccup, and their internal crisis communications team leapt on it, and it seems to me made it worse. So I'm at, right at this moment, I'm fascinated to see how things turn out for this stuff. But it, Well, I mean, the, what I know is that people tend to react in ways that that sometimes compound situations, yes, right? Yes, that's what's happened here. You're right. Oh. And the first instinct can be to leap out and say something, and that first instinct can be wrong. Yes. Oh. You know, there's there's the instinct to apologize. There and and sometimes people do that once they start doing it, they can't stop and they apologize too much to the point where it broadcasts in sincerity. <laughs> there's there's people who enrage people further by trying to minimize it. Right? Oh, you mean the ones who Whatever say, the bad thing uh, was. if I annoyed you, I apologize, instead of, I did annoy you and I'm sorry. Yes, that is enraging, yes. Well, it's it's that one or it's the, I'm sorry you yes. were annoyed. Yes, that's true. Okay. Not sorry for anything I did, I'm just sorry how you felt yeah. about it, right? You know, the, the other good one is... Well, so there was a games company and they sold a huge special edition, limited edition package around a around their game product. And I'm not going to name any names, but they had promised a beautiful canvas bag and charged $200 for this whole set. And what arrived was a nylon bag that was thin and flimsy, not a heavy canvas bag. And someone wrote into their customer service line and said, what are you going to do about this? And they wrote back and said, nothing. Which was accurate, but not what they needed to hear. And, you know, they um, the, the games company came after that and said, you know, that person wasn't responding in line with our, yeah. our details. And we were going to reprimand that person and silence. We're also not going to do anything. And it, it built for a few days. And their response was, we're going to issue you $5 worth of in-game credit. Okay. Well. To the people who'd purchased a $200 yes. limited edition set 
that was advertised, even at that point, there were still places on the internet you could find where they'd advertise it as canvas as opposed to nylon. So they, they, you know, misrepresented what they actually were going to do and then didn't deliver and weren't going to do anything until people made noise about it. And then they were going to give up five bucks. Can you think of what it's like being the person who misunderstood and wrote canvas instead of nylon? No, no, they, they intended to ship canvas initially. What uh-huh. happened was that when they went to produce, they found out that the cost of canvas as a cut and sew product was higher than they wanted for their margins. Uh, well, then is my speculation. They didn't say that, but that's my understanding of manufacturing processes and such. And they just found that it wasn't tenable to ship. And so they went for the next cheapest option and didn't tell anyone who'd actually pay. And didn't check before they started any of this. So all in all, hmm. Okay. Well, we've sorted them yeah. out then, haven't we? Whoever they were. Uh, and my uh, big business, um, big British organization, it'll be fine too. Uh, so we've sorted out everything. Is there anything else going on in the world? Bloomberg. Heard of them. Yeah. Yeah. So they came up with a story that says that Apple's trade-in program is showing Apple's desperation. I'm sorry? They they think that you, taking phones in trade-in is not Apple's environmental group saying this is what they want to do. It's desperation that that this was a move to try and juice iPhone XR sales. I'm so, I just I do not understand how what, – what's their logic for this? Is there a logic for this? Well, their logic was that Apple put up for a limited time iPhone XR from $449 with an asterisk, trading your current iPhone and upgrade to a new one. And oh my gosh, when has Apple ever before advertised an iPhone at $300 less than it actually costs by using an asterisk? <laughs> Expensive asterisk. Uh, I do not know. Okay. Yeah. Well, so what this was, was a holiday promotion, basically. You know, seasonal promotions happen. Apple is not famed for doing huge amounts of promotion, but they are offering a trade-in offer of $300 for an iPhone 7 Plus in good condition, which is $50 more than the credit they typically offer for it, and also a lot less than you might get on the private market, maybe. And they were going to take it in and then be able to turn around and sell you an iPhone XR. Okay, right. Uh, Apple is doomed then. Okay. Right. It's not a money losing effort. It's it's just trying to help people, you know, consider their options. And Apple changed the name of their trading program to Give Back, but it's not a new program. This is nothing new. This is just Bloomberg making noise basically. You know, they've they've been after Apple on a couple of different points lately and it's you know, they they had that story where they claimed that Apple had been vulnerable across a long period of time security-wise. And there's no evidence for it. Apple's asked them to retract the story because they can't show any evidence for it. Yes. No one else has found any evidence for it. Amazon likewise asked them to retract the story. Amusingly, if I may say, Bloomberg themselves use this technology and their own spokesperson says, we haven't had any problems with this. So, yes, uh, interesting. You you pick on Apple uh, for it because so do they, but there's so many other customers, including themselves. So, yes, I have issues with Bloomberg's reporting at this moment. But I'm really and, and the difficulty, right, the difficulty is that they're Bloomberg and so they have a wide audience that, that tends to give them the credence of truth here. Which they've earned, and, to be fair. I mean, they might be denting it with things like this, but they've got here through a lot of good work over a lot of years. So, Yes, but I think this is uh, is is in opposition to that work. 
that this is not accurate and that Bloomberg's trade and sensationalism piece on this is um, yeah is 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 contradictory to that. It's funny, isn't it? I always I associate Bloomberg with serious uh, business financial things, but just these last couple of stories. Now, whenever a story begins with Bloomberg, you just you go head into it thinking, "Oh yeah, right, convince me." Just question yes. mark. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. Now this week we we're having fun because uh, retail had Ron Johnson. He was the original one when they started doing the retail stores uh, seventeen, eighteen years ago, something mm. like that. Well, no, a little bit after that. It was closer to like 16, 15 years ago. Um, started speaking about what it was like when they were prototyping that first retail store in a rented warehouse. You know, he uh, he was on Gimlet's Without Fail podcast and said every Tuesday we'd meet for meet in the morning. I'd lead the meeting. Steve would give his input. And the next week we'd change it all and try it again. And if I didn't have Steve, I didn't know where we were – if we were going to get it done because Steve was so good at this. And Jobs was usually about 15 minutes late. But very much on top of everything, and you know they'd work on a week on the store design and make it radically different. Steve would walk his park his car, walk in the front door, stop, look at six thousand square feet, and put his hand on his chin and he'd say, "Here's what I'd like, and here's what I don't," and he could pick up all the changes on the spot. That's very impressive. You know the uh, the, the table height, right? They'd they'd note that they'd dropped it from thirty six to thirty four inches the week before, and Jobs would come in and say he liked <laughs> it, having remembered the planned changes. Nice. Uh, and the original tables were not the wooden tables that you see now. The original tables were a matte, soft touch, white finished uh, jelly bean kind of shape. Oh, okay. I really like the current table. Well, the current tables are changing, though. Have you noticed? Uh, I understand. I've saw recently the new Santa Monica store has reopened into one of these park like things, and this, they have the same tables, but they're narrower. Um, and you look at the pictures, and it just makes more sense somehow. But otherwise, I like them. Well, it's it's about how you manage having that many people in the store and being able to help them and having these big wide tables with huge expanses in the middle with nothing in mm. them wasn't really helpful. Mm. You know, they they were wide tables and you got a phone on them. You got rows of phones near the edges so people can play with the phones and you got a lot of table in the center with nothing there. The only places you need the big tables like that are the square ones back by where geniuses are helping people. And where the Apple Watches are kept under glass in the middle of the table. Yes. Yeah, but even those are, are changing a little bit because you don't need them under glass if you can have a couple of Apple employees on with them right there and have them all out. Right. So it's all working out. But yeah, those are changes we're noticing. And that's, they continually tweak the design. As seemingly but, they did uh, back then. That's fascinating. Okay. Oh, absolutely. But one of the things that I like, uh, find interesting is when we hear stories about jobs and conflict. So Johnson recounted an episode. He said and, – and Steve came in and he said, Ron, do you know how hard I've worked on this store? Because I've been coming here over a year for nearly half a year, every Tuesday. And we got finally something – we finally got something I want to build and you want to tear it up. I don't know that I have the energy to do this. I don't want you to bring it up today. I said, okay. So we get in his car and we drive this two to three mile, probably takes 10, 15 minutes over to the warehouse. Didn't say a word. I didn't say a word. I don't think he was very happy. Wow. To Johnson's surprise, on visiting the prototype, Jobs told assembled people there that Johnson was right about wanting an overhaul and that he'd come back when the work was finished. He called me that night at 8 o'clock and said, Ron, he goes, you reminded me of a really important lesson. Everything great I've done, I've had to have the courage at some point in the process to start over and rethink it. 
And he told me stories about every Pixar movie done, how they're pretty close to want to release the movie, and they realize, you know, we could change the ending. We could improve a character. He went through some of the products he'd done at Apple and how you had to know when it was good enough. He said, I'm really proud of you for challenging the design of the store. And he goes, I'm going to have you lead it a little more because I don't know that I have the energy to start from scratch, but we ought to do it better. Wow. I find the store stuff just fascinating. Johnson then, um, Arendt's now, the whole thing. In some ways, it feels like it's the part of Apple that doesn't get the attention it deserves. And yet, it's obviously the engine that keeps the, the whole company going. It's just love all this stuff. Yeah. Now, Johnson came from Target, where he'd revamped Target. After Apple, he went to JCPenney, where he tried to revamp them unsuccessfully. And and honestly, I was really optimistic about his changes. Yeah. I liked them when I saw them implemented. You know, they took old properties and made them fresh again with the store inside a store interior and instead of having to do the whole coupon thing. But it turns out what really failed for them was that there are customers, JCPenney customers, like getting coupons. Even if the coupons don't really do anything for the price off of regular pricing, it makes them feel as though they do. Yeah. And so when when Johnson tried to adjust everything and said, look, we're not going to do coupons anymore. We're just going to give you the best prices. It flopped because that wasn't their customer. And that was the big mistake. He's currently the CEO of a company called Enjoy, which is an online store that delivers and sets up tech products for you. So if you got a brand new iPhone and you weren't able to figure out how to import all your old stuff, they will come over and take 30 minutes and help you oh, do wow. it. Okay. Interesting. I can think of people who would find that really useful. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you buy a Mac, you know, definitely you want to migrate your stuff or you bought a Mac and came from a PC. Yes. Right. There are all kinds of occasions or, you know, you bought a drone and you need basic lessons in figuring out how to fly this thing. Sorry, you just reminded me there's actually a friend who asked my advice about moving to Macs from PCs, and quite unusually for me, I told him not to because he was so, so into Windows, uh, and it was a crucial time in his work. I thought, you know, you might like it eventually, but the handover would be difficult, and he ignores me completely, goes straight over to Apple, and for weeks afterwards, he phones me up every now and again laughing at how much easier it is. I, I remember there's one particular one where he actually phoned up, and before he even said hello, he started reading the instructions for installing some software, and he read a page of Windows instructions and then said, and get this, Apple Mac, press OK. And that was it. There was a difference. So he's gone away very happy with that move. But sorry, you just reminded me of that. You know, that's brilliant because I was thinking that what he was going to end up doing was having bought the Mac and then run Windows okay. on it. <laughs> right. That just seems heinous. I do remember that uh, several times now the best Mac, excuse me, the best Windows portable, best Windows laptop has been a Mac a few years running. I find that amusing. But still seems yeah, wrong. Yeah, definitely. Somehow, I like the combination. I mean, seriously, I, I, there's plenty of Windows hardware I like, but it's uh, the Mac and uh, Mac OS together that I think is uh, unbeatable. Yeah, let's take just a brief second. You're almost out of time. Uh, Apple Music yes. for Business. Street, you know, so we 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 know Apple Music. It's a well-known service. It's out there competing with Spotify. Why would you want Apple Music for Business? It's great. Isn't that, isn't that enough for you? What more could you want? Greatness. So Apple filed uh, an application for the trademark for Apple Music for Business. And basically, you can play Apple Music all you like in your house, in your car, in your headphones, whatever. But you're not supposed to use it as in-store entertainment. You're not supposed to use it as music when you're, when you're conducting sure. a business in stores kind of thing. And so 
what has classically happened is that you have to have something that works with ASCAP BMI for a performance license, mm-hmm. PRS in the UK, and be able to pay the artists for the performance or the plays of those songs. And so Apple Music for Business is a, a service where that's going to be compliant with those licensing groups so that you can use it in stores and then pay for the listening of the music. That's perfectly reasonable to me. I just hesitated there for a second about whether to tell you something or not, and I feel I'm, I'm going to, so I might as well just get on with it. Uh, there's a store in the UK called John Lewis. Do you have that in the US? Uh, do you know it? We do not, but I know very... them well. They're sort of hoity-toity, kind of high-end-ish. They, they do, do nice, nice Christmas, Christmas adverts. adverts. Uh, they also have an uh, interesting business model. Every member of staff is actually a shareholder in the company, but also they have great, um, I don't know, um, Whatever they're equivalent of Apple carriers is very good, but yeah, and and so in in their way they're conducting retail. Many of the items are just not on the shelves. They are they're a sample item that's out on the floor, and you go and you say you want to buy this item, and they pull it from the back warehouse for you and deliver it to you. Yes, at the, car uh, the fact that's pretty much how I got my HomePod recently. Except I didn't wait for them; I rushed in to grab it out of their hands. Uh, but what I was in there, yeah. We don't do that. We don't do that kind of retail in the US anymore. A couple of years ago, I was walking through their main display area and I looked at the Apple stuff and nearby there were, you know, they had TV sets, they had sound systems, they had big speakers and they were playing really loudly the Let It Go from Frozen. And I loved that song. I loved that film. I was really into this. And then they switched the sound off. And you burst out singing in they the store. They switched off the speakers and I didn't shut up in time. Yes. Yeah, I'm saying, whole store yeah. looking at me. As if I'd been in tune, it might have been one thing, but yeah. <sighs> okay, no sympathy there. Yeah. Uh, right, glad I brought that up. Yes. Okay. Yeah, years ago I had product that sold in, wow. in John Lewis. I was very proud of it. It was, it was pretty awesome. Yeah, I actually did in-store demos of the product in John Lewis in uh, in center of London. Excellent. All right. Can you say yep. what the product is? Are you allowed to? That at that time, that was a Gear Four Unity remote. I don't even know what and that is. And it, it, it was it was a Bluetooth low energy universal remote control IR blaster. And so, from your iPhone, from an application, you could control all of your home AV gear. <laughs> and so, just as happened to you in store, yes. I could change the volume on all of their TVs on demonstration with one command from my iPhone. Nice. Uh, when remote controls came out, infrared remote controls came out, I actually went down to our local village store and leant against the uh, shop window, uh, just pressing buttons on it, uh, changing channels, ejecting tapes, rewinding things, pausing stuff. <laughs> um, yes, that was... Oh, uh, you troublemaker. Bit. Yes, thank you for yeah. revisiting these whole AV retail stories of mine. Yes. Yeah. So wizardpins.com is the easiest way to create custom pins with your logo or design. Once you upload your design, wizardpins will send you a free virtual mock-up of your pin. They can work with any design from hand-drawn sketches to professional design files, and they provide unlimited art revisions until you're completely satisfied. Wizardpins can create pins of any size or shape for any occasion, and their excellent customer service team will help you select the style that's best for you. All the pricing is listed clearly on their site, no waiting for a quote, no hassle, no hidden fees, and they offer free shipping and the fastest turnaround in the industry. Some items can be made in as little as two days' time. WizardPens is perfect for small or large businesses, nonprofits, armed forces, professional organizations, and more. They also make custom challenge coins, keychains, and race medals. Head to wizardpins.com and enter code Apple Insider to get 20% off your first order. That's code Apple Insider for 20% off your first order at wizardpins.com. Well, William, that's all the time we have for today. Oh, it's because you got that guy I on know. talking about one of my favorite pieces and stuff. Yeah, like that guy. Typical. 
that guy. Michael Simmons. Michael Simmons from Algorithm, from Fantastical. We love that yeah, guy. Absolutely. He's really the best. So interesting. To hear. And we're so glad we have Yes. Well yeah. done for that. We will be back next week with more, and we hope you'll join us then. Thank you so much. William, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I lurk around Twitter as W Gallagher, but you can also just go straight through to me as William at AppleInsider.com. I am Victor at AppleInsider.com. I'm at VMarks on Twitter, and we'll be back then. See you. Bye.